0: This morning we have a few more children in our time with children than we normally have in this service. Uh, It's partly because our contemporary worship service this morning is on the run. Uh, They are over at Lacey Park this morning. Young Life is having a 5K run. And so our contemporary worshipers were invited to join the 5K run as either runners or just supporters And then worship this morning is going to be held at the home of Julie and Jeff Lynn, members of the church, Uh, for all of those people. uh, So it's going to be quite an event, and that's where a number of our folks are this morning, just so you know. That's why we have so many children here in worship, and they'll be returning, because this morning we have communion together as a family. We have begun this new sermon series since Easter, Every member in ministry. Peggy Flynn, uh, my assistant, came up with this wonderful graphic that you see on your bulletin this morning, you were made for more. It drives home the point of every member in ministry. And we just heard a wonderful time with children that lifts up the value and the gifts that children bring to our ministry. I think sometimes we undersell them. So what is the Lord calling you to? You and I have each been uniquely gifted for something to make some kind of significant contribution to the body of Christ. What were you made for? This morning our text from 1 Timothy captures the advice of an older mentor, the Apostle Paul, given to his young mentee, Timothy. Timothy. And young Timothy is instructed not to allow others to dismiss him because of his youthfulness or his inexperience or his lack of knowledge. Rather, he's encouraged to set an example for others in speech and conduct, to live his faith, to put it into practice. Though he may be young, if he understands that he was made for more, There's no telling what impact a young person's life can have. So I invite you to listen to this advice from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. "...until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting or to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. And pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching." Continue in these things, for in doing so, in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, we do come this morning. We come because we believe you have made us for more. We seek to listen to that stirring of your spirit within us. We ask that by your grace you might speak to us and quiet within us any voice but your own. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, this past week, just a week ago in the Sunday newspaper, there was an op-ed piece about the death of three young mountain climbers in Alberta, Canada, last month in April. These were experienced climbers at the top of their game, climbing the east face of the house peak north of Banff in Canada. An avalanche killed all three while alpine climbing the 10,810-foot peak Now, it caught my attention because years ago I did a little alpine climbing, rappelling, ropes, carabiners, pitons, all of that. And I know that mountain climbing can be dangerous. Perhaps you watched the recent National Geographic documentary Free Solo that was so popular since the beginning of the year, in which Alex Hunold climbs El Capitan in under four hours, no ropes, 3,000 feet. It was ropeless. Was it reckless? There's no margin of error. One mistake, and your life is over when you're free climbing. In February this year, two additional climbers disappeared on the 26,660-foot peak in the Himalayas. Tom Ballard was one of those two. And years earlier, Tom's mother in 1995 died while climbing K2 in a storm after she summited when Tom was six years old. At the time, she was accused of being a reckless mother, leaving her son and daughter at home and attempting to climb a mountain that statistically kills 25% of those who challenge it. Since April, now both mother and son have lost their lives in climbing accidents. What is it that drives these climbers to take such risks? You'd think that Cutting-edge Alpinists were a bunch of adrenaline junkies, but they're not, writes Francis Sanzaro, who wrote the author, was the author of the article. They're highly analytical, supremely aware, often tightly controlled, he writes. But in the aftermath of their deaths, blame is common. The deceased are blamed for taking too much risk. They're called selfish, if these climbers truly knew the impact of their deaths, he writes, they would pack it up. He, he concludes his article this way, one truth goes to the heart of death in our climbing community. You can't fall out of love with something. Having known two of the three men who died on House Peak, I know that climbing made them feel alive. The question is, could we feel alive enough if we stopped? Most climbers think not. I agree, he writes. I couldn't help but think, what a load of crap. (laughs) And what a waste of life. You take such remarkable risks just to feel alive? I'm an adrenaline junkie, but that's a load of crap. There are better ways to feel alive, ways that actually allow you to stay alive. But it raises the question, what's really worth living for? Is it the number of breaths you take or the moments that take your breath away as the saying goes? And does it have to be one or the other? Can't it be both? You don't have to be an adrenaline junkie or an alpine mountain climber to find something to fall in love with in life. I think too many young people take their own lives for lack of falling in love with something in life. And I believe they would actually rather give their lives than take them. But they haven't found any purpose for which to live that's large enough, that's great enough, that's demanding enough to give their lives to. Which brings me to Timothy. Timothy is the first product of youth ministry in the first century. He grew up in a home with a Jewish mother and a Greek father. His grandmother was involved in the Christian community. But the Apostle Paul did more than simply invite Timothy to come to church for pizza and a few games. He recruited this young person for ministry. He understood that young people are gifted and called to ministry just like the rest of us. And unfortunately, churches like ours are agonizingly aware of our inability to influence young people significantly. Teenagers today live in a world where violence and sex are givens, writes Candidine in her book, The God-Bearing Life. One-tenth of teenage boys and almost twice as many girls harbor memories of at least one botched suicide attempt. Physical assault has more than doubled in American schools since 1985, with non-white youth the most likely victims. A quarter of all middle and senior high school students will attend school this week fearful for their safety. One in three youth over the age of 10 is sexually active. Over the age of 10. By age 19, three fourths of white females, 85% of white males. 83% of black females and 96% of black males will have had coitus at least once. Kenda Dean's book was written two decades ago. All of these things have been increasing in the last two decades. She writes, Jesus Christ calls young people like all of us into ministry and not to a youth program. And when our own lives with God catch fire, the souls of youth and our congregations will ignite as well. I guess the question is what would happen if our lives really caught fire with our faith? Maybe then our ministries with young people in particular would provide the kind of awe inspiring basis for living that so many young people are apparently searching for. They're willing to take enormous risks for something that makes them feel alive. You see, thin gods are everywhere. We know how quickly teenagers will rip through thin faith. If the God of Jesus Christ isn't more awesome and more substantial than alpine climbing or ecstasy and drug use or the mystery of sex or the security of money or the adulation of a cheering crowd, then why would they bother with Christianity at all? Thin gods are available by the dozen. And young people see right through them. And if we're honest with ourselves, so do we. But what a difference it makes when a young life actually meets the living God. What a difference it makes when God gets a hold of these impetuous, these inexperienced, these improbable young people and sends them into life with purpose and a sense of mission. It happened for Timothy. It happened for Isaiah. It happened for Jeremiah. It happened for Mary. We've underestimated, I think, the importance of the young people that are in our very midst and the contribution that they can make to igniting our own faith. One of the colleagues I had the privilege of working with some years ago, Dr. Don Jewell, was a New Testament scholar at Princeton Seminary, he tells the story of on one occasion he was teaching a group of young teenagers at a Sunday Bible study. And he highlighted the, work, the, the Greek word schisma, which is in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, and it's translated torn apart. It's the same Greek root word from which we get the word schism. When Jesus comes walking out of the water at his baptism in Mark's gospel, he saw the heavens schisma torn apart. Then Dr. Jewell goes on to explain to these high school students that the only other place in Mark's gospel where this little word appears is in the 15th chapter, where at the crucifixion, Jesus gives a loud cry, breathes his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Schisma. Now, having impressed the students with his language skills, Dr. Jewell goes on to drive home the point that all that separated us from God is ripped open. The heavens above where God resides, the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest would enter the temple to atone for the sins of the people on Yom Kippur. And Dr. Jewell went on to explain to this group of students that the tearing apart of the temple curtain and the heavens meant we now have access to God. And as he elaborated, feeling rather impressed with himself, this biblical scholar, after all, who is willing to teach this group of young people much more important things to do, he all of a sudden noticed this young man had raised his hand. And he said, I have something to say. So Dr. Jewell nodded and said, well, go ahead. And the teenager said, I think you have it wrong. Now imagine that. This kid who studies the Bible maybe once a month in Sunday school, if he's lucky, tells a biblical scholar who studies it every day in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew that he's got it wrong. And after that opening statement, Dr. Jewell listened rather intently to what the young man had to say, and later he went on to say, it changed forever the way I look at this passage. The young man simply said, I don't think it means that we have access to God. I think it means that all of a sudden, God has access to us. And Dr. Jewell realized in that moment that all of a sudden, the God we have trapped in heaven, the God we have behind the curtain, safely tucked away in the sanctuary somewhere, is on the loose. And here's this young man listening to the teachings, alive in the Spirit of the Lord, feeling alive. We don't have access to God. God has access to us. The buffer between us is gone, torn apart, schisma, ripped up. We're likely to have this kind of romantic idea of how it all works. We pray for a closer walk with thee. But secretly, we believe ourselves to be in control. We think we're the ones dealing the cards. But if God has access to us, watch out. You never know where or when the Lord is going to mess with your life. Giving you a purpose for life. Giving you something to live for. Some important undertaking. Some true joy of living. Being used for a great cause. There's nothing that gives more joy to life than that. You see, according to the Bible, ever since Adam and Eve, we've been on the run. We're running for our lives. We're anxious. We're uncertain. We're desperately grasping for something that will give life meaning and significance. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of falling. We seek to buffer ourselves against human frailty and uncertainty, or alternately, we take on huge risks just to feel alive. And often as we go about our days and weeks, we travel in disguise wearing our carefully managed masks and running away from one another. Maybe it's time to stop running. At least stop running away. Begin running towards that which makes for life and the one who made us for life. So I'm recruiting today. You want to ignite your own faith? If you care about what's happening to young people today in our world and in our community that I'm recruiting. Join us in our ministry to children and students. You have this opportunity coming up on May 19th to find out more about it. Just come for brunch and find out how you can support these important ministries. I'm convinced that our students and our children can feel a lot more alive than alpine climbers. When they authentically meet the one who made them. When they become enlisted in the movement that Jesus Christ calls them to. And Here's the thing. You and I actually might feel more alive too. Our own faith might be more ignited when we put ourselves in that place. So let me conclude with this. I want you to think back to your own teenage years for just a moment. And I want you to think of one person besides your parents who was the most positive influence in your life during your teen years. Just think and say to yourself quietly that name. And then think to yourself, what was the, the meaningful influence in your life that that person had? So for me, it would be John Dirks. Believed in me and invested in me. Now, take that name and that sentence and repeat it again in your mind, but substitute the name Jesus for the person you remember. In my case, Jesus believed in me and invested in me. you begin to grasp that we become God-bearers for one another. It's one of the reasons that in a few moments we're going to pass these elements of communion to one another. Can you imagine how outstanding that must have felt to those people who always had to receive the elements of communion from the priest and now discovered we pass Christ to one another, and we receive Christ from one another. And it ignites our faith. So let's give young people in our community something to believe in that leaves them so awestruck and so alive that they don't have to take unnecessary risks because they're made for more than that. So are we. So let's shake off our complacency like Timothy. Let's set an example in our speech and conduct, in our love, in our faith, in our purity. Thanks be to God. Amen.